Hello and welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your very much work in progress host, Harv, and I hope you're having a wonderful day, wherever you might be listening to this. Uh, This is the first episode of the podcast. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been particularly comfortable sitting alone in a room, talking to a microphone who uh, just stares at me blankly with its dead black eyes and never fucking replies. Oh, did you have a good day, microphone? Did you, did you, um, what'd you do today? What'd you get up to? Right, um, uh, how's the weather? You, you're keeping warm? I see you've got a sock on, so um, is, is that enough? Do you need to rug up more? Do you want me to drape something over you? No? I mean, would it hurt you to reply just once? No, you're not going to, though, are you? Because you're a weird little black-eyed, dead-souled piece of crap. Um, anyway, look, I'm going to persevere. Um, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while. Um, I know living in my head, I have some pretty uh, far-out thoughts. Um, I tend to think fairly philosophically. I listen to a lot of philosophical podcasts. bit of Sam Harris, a uh, bit of Russell Brand, bit of this, bit of that. Um, at the moment, my favourite podcast is Going Rogue with Caitlin Johnson, which is a very highly recommended podcast. And in a lot of ways, it's what has influenced this one because Caitlin often speaks of the media in terms of narrative and how the stories that are spun uh, influence us. And that's basically what I want to talk about here, but just with a wider lens, not talking necessarily about the news, current affairs, or anything in particular, um, but just the power of story itself, because I do think story influences us a lot more than we give it credit for, and it needs to be elevated in its status uh, as a value that humans hold dear, because it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And if we do not understand the stories that are being used to influence us, then they will hold power over us. I really don't know if this thesis is valuable or interesting, even to me. So what I want to do is just explore it through the episodes and see where it takes us. Um, In a lot of ways, I haven't thought this through. I'm just following a line of thought that feels somewhat powerful to me and somewhat within my wheelhouse. And by that, I mean... Uh, Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I do YouTube. I do creative things. And at the core of all the things that I do is story. So I'm kind of predisposed to believing in this. I think that's where my sense of connection with this idea comes from. Because in a a way, it's a a confirmation bias. Uh, I want to believe that story is important. And I'd love to live in a society where we do less work that we don't like and more work that we do like. And I think more work that we do like would involve telling stories in different forms, uh, creating art, and doing those things that uh, you tend to want to do when you're a kid before the adult world steps on your face and tells you that that's not the shit that adults do. Um, I did work experience in an advertising agency when I was a kid, and I was kind of terrified by it. I 
um, I was shadowing a uh, advertising executive who was very successful and quite famous in Australia, at least. I won't say his name, but um, suffice to say, he was somewhat revered in the advertising world um, and very heavily respected. Um, and I looked at him and uh, uh, through my fairly young eyes, I think I would have been around probably 15 or 16, I guess. And uh, I watched him um, producing ad campaigns and coming up with ideas and holding meetings and so on. Um, and I was not impressed. Let's just put it that way. I just thought, so what? He's come up with some ideas. Like I have a thousand ideas a day. What's the big deal? Why is this man so respected that he can just put a few ideas out there and everybody licks his boots, so to speak. And that observation led me to the understanding that as you become an adult in life, you tend to lose that spark of creativity that you have when you're younger. And that very concept terrified me at the time because I realized that if I didn't make an effort to hold on to that creativity and make it important inside my mind and cultivate it, that I might just lose it. It might just disappear. And that was a horrible idea for me. And it's something that's really formed the core of my personality um, and my behavior, uh, even as an adult. But enough reminiscing about my childhood. Uh, let's have a listen to a little bit of Going Rogue, the podcast that I mentioned earlier. Here's a clip uh, that really exemplifies how she talks about story throughout the whole podcast. So I just wanted to talk about how important she was in the whole system and how um, upheld these and protected these characters are, who like Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow, um, you know, who will re be reliable liars for the establishment to carry forward the narrative that they need to carry forward because in the end the only power that these assholes have over us is story. Mm. is in story. So because, you know, everything that we that we are beyond uh, you know, the simple things of our, you know, biology is everything that we think we are, everything that we go about and do, everything that we are uh, we think about in the past, everything that we're planning in the future is is story. It's just uh, like a ongoing narrative. And it's if you can control that then you can control people and if you can control mass control that as they do in the mass media then you can control everyone sorry i had my mic off because i'm not a professional podcaster so don't worry about it uh i'll probably cut this out or maybe i'll leave it in i don't really give a fuck hey microphone what did you do yesterday so pretty much same as today then Oh, for fuck's sake, say something! Anyway, uh, interesting quote there from Caitlin Johnson about how the media uses story to control people, or more specifically how the establishment uses story to control people via the media. And, uh, you know, since I've sort of had this insight uh, in, in my head, I've been a little, well, I've been making friends everywhere, let's be honest, about what's been happening. Um, because. I've become somewhat obsessed with challenging people's ideas when they express them. Um, and I know this triggers cognitive dissonance and makes for a difficult confrontational conversation. And it's really not what I'm after. What I'm after is 
trying to get people to realize and understand where their ideas are really coming from. Because when they express an idea and they don't know the source of that idea, it causes a little stutter in their brain, a little glitch, a little malfunction. It, it causes a, a strange electrical current that they're unfamiliar with. But I don't think that's an unhealthy thing. I think it's something that is good to experience because when that happens, and it happens to me on a frequent basis, when it happens, it can echo around in your head for several days. Your brain is like, what was that thing? That thing that made me think differently, that made me confront what I believe and why I believe it. And if it's really true to start with. And so, you know, every, every now and again, someone will express a belief. Um, one of my favorites is, you know, something about um, how the Russians are you know, at war with the Americans somehow. And I just say, well, how do you know that? How do you believe that? What is the reason that you just said that out loud as if it's true? And people have a lot of trouble tracing this. It's, it's also something that uh, the, the Going Rogue podcast covers a lot. The, the whole Russian thing is just a narrative. There's actually been very little substance to the massive amounts of news stories, at least in the US media, and I think a little bit here in Australia too, um, about how Russia hacked the election, Russia assassinated a, a Russian citizen on American soil, Russia did this, Russia did that. Um, but then if you actually go out and search for speeches that Putin gives or, or media interviews that he gives, assuming that they're translated correctly, which I must admit, I have no idea uh, whether that's the case or not, but assuming they're translated correctly, he's a pretty reasonable dude. Um, and he actually kind of keeps saying he just refuses to play the stupid childish games that the US media is trying to force him to play. He just won't engage. And to me, that just seems like the more reasonable approach to being accused of absolutely insane things like colluding with Donald Trump to win in the election. President Putin, you have repeatedly and passionately denied that Russia was behind the interference with our American presidential election. But as you know, the consensus view in the United States is that you did. That's what the 17 intelligence agencies concluded, and that's what the Republicans and the Democrats on the congressional oversight committees who have seen the classified report have said. <clears throat> Are they all lying? They have been misled, and they aren't analyzing the information in its entirety. I haven't seen even once any direct proof of Russian interference in the presidential election in the United States. Now, I'm not saying Donald Trump should have won the election, or he shouldn't have, or he's a good president, or he's a bad president. Um, you know, make up your own stories on that, because to be honest, I don't really have a horse in the race. Um, there's an interesting narrative around Donald Trump about whether he's, uh, you know, an establishment um, stooge just there to carry war, like all of the other figureheads that have taken the presidential role over the last, you know, few decades, or whether or not Donald Trump is in fact some kind of heroic character playing 4D chess and somehow uh, pretending that he's establishment, but at the same time draining the swamp and all of that bullshit. It's a fantastic story. Geez, I wish I knew the truth. But at the end of the day, I must admit I don't. All I know is the stories that I've been told. But yeah, the Russian narrative, I mean... Come on, it's just stupid. There's nothing to it. You know, it's it's just people who took out ads on Facebook 
and someone who I believe may have even just got food poisoning, um, and the media made up the rest. And what the experts say is that this couldn't have been faked, that it's a hundred factors that point to Russia. They say it's the forensics, it's the digital fingerprints, it's the IP addresses, the malware, the encryption keys, the specific pieces of code, that all of them, all of them point to Russia, and none of them points to anyone other than Russia. What fingerprints, or hoof prints, or horn prints? What are you talking about? IP addresses. They can be invented, you know? There are a lot of specialists who can even make it so it comes from your home IP address, as if your three-year-old daughter carried out the attack. There is no substance. There's nothing to it. However, in people's heads, somehow, we're in this, you know, pending world war against Russia. Or maybe it's against North Korea. They can't seem to make up their mind who the boogeyman is. But it's one of them, or both of them, or all of them, or maybe it's everyone, because they hate us for our freedoms. They hate us for our freedoms. Is that even remotely a plausible motivation for any of this geopolitical bullshit that they talk about? Honestly, I don't buy it. I don't think you should. But hey, I'm not here to tell you what stories to believe. I'm just here to point out that they are stories. So I was listening to the Waking Up podcast with Sam Harris earlier in the week, and he had a guest on called Jeffrey Miller. Now, Jeffrey Miller is an interesting guy who talks about uh, human behavior and evolution and the utility of human behaviors that on some levels feel like they do not have a basis in survival. Um, and he said something on the podcast that kind of threw my entire story idea into some form of disarray. Um, and I wanted to mention it because I think it's important to consider the other side of the story. As I said, it's highly possible that I just like the idea that story is somehow an important aspect of being the core of our consciousness in a way. But Jeffrey Miller offers uh, a different interpretation. Everyone more or less knows about natural selection, but there's this other variable, sexual selection. What, what is that? Sexual selection, um, I think, was Darwin's most brilliant idea. Natural selection, you know, Wallace also invented it. Other folks would have invented it. I think if we hadn't had Darwin, we might not have had sexual selection for another 50 years hmm. in the history of biology. Brilliant idea. Darwin realized if animals choose their mates selectively for certain traits, those traits will tend to get amplified and become more complex and, and conspicuous and colorful and intricate and, and impressive. They'll work better and better as signals of the animal's underlying good genes, good health, good coordination ability. And that opens uh, a real Pandora's box of, of amazing adaptations like bird song, uh, whale song, you know, human song, human language, that you might not have been able to get if you only had natural selection for survival. And I got absolutely fascinated by it in grad school um, at Stanford in the late 80s when I thought, you know, being a young single man, why is it that women and men have the mate preferences they do? Why do they seem to care about these things? Mm. Like uh, verbal fluency or humor or musical aptitude that don't have survival payoffs in any simple way. 
Uh, and that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about, to argue that the same things that are romantically attractive now in humans may have been romantically attractive in prehistory and may have shaped our minds to be able to do specifically those things. So I think um, the human mind is not just a survival machine, it's also a, a courtship machine. So all that's a kind of a long-winded way of saying um, we do clever things to get laid. But could you apply that to storytelling? You know, um, did Stephen King write Carrie so that he could impress his wife or I don't know if he was married at the time, but, you know, find a, find a woman, find a mate. Um, it's a bit funny hearing people use the word mate when you're Australian. It's, uh, it's, it's confusing. And so is the word thong. But um, is the way we tell each other stories and the stories that we tell, are they just a way to attract the opposite sex? You know, do we do this inherently? Uh, is there some underlying motivation that puts it outside of something that's a little bit more obviously sexually oriented, like dance? Is storytelling set apart from that? Or is all of our behavior just mixed in as one big show and dance for the hot girl in the room or the hot guy in the room? And for some reason, I just have trouble accepting this. But when I listened to that part of the podcast, it did make me ponder a little bit whether or not this premise is upset by that idea. Jeffrey Miller goes on to talk about it in detail, and, and he basically says that the, the fact that everything that we do is virtue signaling is a positive force of evolution because it does lead to us doing good things. So the fact that we have a motivation or a potential motivation outside of the purest, most selfless form of motivation to, say, write a story or make a movie doesn't mean that the act itself is hollow or superficial. Um, the motivation may well be, but the act itself can still have more meaning than the intention behind it. So great, right? Cognitive dissonance avoided, uh, you know, a bubble preserved, and uh, I can continue with my hypothesis for a hundred episodes of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Look, as I said, I don't have all the answers, and I don't intend to. To be honest, I don't even feel particularly interested when I listen to people who claim to have the answers. So if you're the type of person who wants to be spoken to by an authoritative voice who knows everything, you're probably looking at the wrong guy. I'm not that guy. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just virtue signaling too. Hey, look, I'm not an arrogant guy. <laughs> Can I have a blowjob? And of course, the microphone says no. Um, thanks very much, microphone. All the stuff I've done for you. And you, uh, you won't even give me a quick gobby. With that single inflammatory tweet, Roseanne's rising star imploded today. Within hours, the highly anticipated return of one of TV's most beloved shows, Roseanne, canceled. And Roseanne Barr effectively banished from Hollywood for this racist tweet. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. The VJ referred to 
is Valerie Jarrett, the former advisor to President Obama. Barr deleted the tweet and tweeted an apology to Jarrett, saying in part, forgive me, my joke was in bad taste. Almost no one thought it was funny. Within hours, ABC pulled the plug on the show, saying Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and we've decided to cancel her show. Bob Iger, CEO of ABC's parent company, Disney, adding, there was only one thing to do here, and that was the right thing. I'm sure you've all heard about the cancellation of the Roseanne show. It's probably one of the most important stories that's hit the media um, in a decade, I would say. Uh, the loss of a TV show is just massive, just massive, and especially one that people like to watch. People like to watch it. So this is important. Um, and, and I'm being facetious. I did, I did watch a few episodes of the show. I thought it was good. It was exactly just like the old one. Um, but I was probably more interested in how the show got cancelled than I was in the show itself um, because this whole thing is narrative too, right? I mean, you could very easily have, uh, have handled this whole thing very differently. Uh, they could have cancelled the show and just quietly swept it under the rug, deleted uh, Roseanne's Twitter account or disowned her or whatever and not made a big show and dance about it. And I said show and dance because I said it before and for some reason, I, I know that's not a real phrase. I know it's not a real phrase. It's song and dance. Song and dance is the phrase. But I say show and dance. So I want you to get used to that because I'm going to make it real. I'm going to repeat it so many times that you're going to think you're wrong calling it song and dance. So just another example of story there. But the Roseanne thing, I mean, it's just such a big circus. And while I listen to it, I just can't help thinking about Okay, what are they? What are they getting at here? Why is this getting the media attention uh, that it's getting? You know, why is there such hysteria surrounding this whole thing? And the only thing I can really come up with to explain it is, it's kind of like a shot across the bow, right? Um, I don't know if you guys uh, know of you know what Roseanne's been doing between uh, when her show originally finished and the new revival version of her show. But she's somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. Um, I think she's considered a conservative and apparently they're all victimized in the media, although I don't really know if that's true or not. They certainly seem to be a little bit canceled on YouTube occasionally. Um, but Roseanne, she said some pretty crazy stuff through the years, um, probably a lot worse than comparing African-American people to apes. And actually, to be fair, she's, she compared one specific African-American person to an ape. And uh, that's not necessarily racist in intent. It comes out racist, of course, and gets interpreted that way. But I can kind of I can buy her story that uh, that perhaps she didn't mean it that way and she wasn't thinking straight. It's possible, um, and I think at the end of the day, we all have some pretty strange ideas in our head that come from our our upbringing, and we work hard to resist them. But at the same time, if you're told something when you're a kid, uh, you, you know you kind of it's still in your mind. There's there's still a, a childish part of you that believes it. So if, if Roseanne believes that uh, black people are like apes, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to censor myself either, but I'm just not going to say this. 
I'm just trying to be reasonable, guys. I'm just trying to be uh, human and truthful. Um, and that's going to be interpreted completely wrong in this politically correct environment. I got to be honest, I'm afraid. And do you know what? That's exactly the point. Roseanne's story, if nothing else, it highlights the fact that if you say something that's considered politically incorrect, you will be ostracized. It's a form of control to try and stop people and make them think about what they're saying. And to some extent, that's a good thing, right? Uh, If you are a genuinely racist person or if you're genuinely sexist or any other ist that we don't like, then yes, you should be forced to stop and reconsider your views, right? But if you're a comedian and you make a joke and it doesn't hit, I don't think that you should have a death sentence. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, I guess, you know, it's good that this is the first episode. Probably no one will listen to this. And if it ever gets successful, they can go back and say, oh, he supported Roseanne and that makes him a racist too. Fuck it. I didn't. I just don't give a shit. All right. I just think the story surrounding Roseanne is intended to be a cautionary tale. And for whatever reason, be it uh, some kind of, uh, you know, overarching agenda of the fucking Illuminati, or whether it's just a whole bunch of people seizing on opportunities to virtue signal that they're not racist, the story still has the same function, which is to serve as a cautionary tale to tell people that if you step out of line, you're going to get hurt. You're going to make sacrifices. I don't know. To me, it doesn't even seem plausible that racism is possible. You know, I grew up in a school that was multicultural. I didn't even know the difference between the guys who were from Malta and Syria and Japan and China. I didn't, I I had no idea. I actually, if anything, have been trained to be racist by the real world and have had to reject that training. I've, I've been pushed into it, if anything, you know, like the media keeps telling me that these Iranians are crazy, you know, or these Muslims are all psychotic. And if it wasn't for the fact that the entire premise of an entire culture of people or entire religion or an entire country or any group that large, or even more than, you know, two or three people being crazy together, if it wasn't so implausible and illogical, Maybe I would have actually conceded to that conditioning, but I haven't. And I just don't, I'd look at this stuff and I just can't get that excited about it. And I'm sorry if I'm supposed to express outrage and I don't, I I know it's bad, but I just don't want to follow the training. So I'm just going to leave it out there. I'm going to let it lie and I'll let you decide what kind of cunt I really am. But just to wrap up this Roseanne story, I guess uh, the other side of it is how did Valerie Jarrett decide to respond to this? Did she express outrage? Did she say that she was deeply hurt by Roseanne's words? No. She said this. I think we have to turn it into a teaching moment. I'm fine. I'm worried about all the people out there who don't have a circle of friends and followers who come right to their defense. So it's a teaching moment. She says that out loud, almost as if, I don't know, was she in on it? Were they all in on it? Is it a conspiracy? Maybe not, but I'll tell you what it is. 
it's a fantastic opportunity to virtue signal. And it's an opportunity that I've completely missed. Fuck that one up, didn't I? What I should have said is, what Roseanne said was outrageous. I do not endorse it. And yeah, see, I vomited in my mouth while I was trying to say it. All right, that's it. I think we're done here. Um, haven't really got much else to say. I've made it to about the 30-minute mark, I would imagine, depending on how long I make the theme song. You know, maybe I'll make it seven minutes long and then, you know, the podcast won't need to be as long, you know. It's, I'm not going to lie, it's been difficult. I've, uh, I've, I've had a lot of trouble uh, speaking. And to be honest, I still don't fully trust this fucking microphone just staring at me with his little beady eyes or lack of eyes. There's no eyes. I mean, that's creepy by itself, isn't it? How you doing? Maybe you and I should go out for a date and build some trust before we do this again. What do you got on Thursday? Nothing? I'll take you out for a steak. So this has basically been uh, pure hell, but I've enjoyed the ride. Um, I hope you have too. Uh, and I'm going to be putting this out once a week. So, you know, if you've got like a podcast app or whatever, subscribe on that. I don't know if they call it subscribing for podcasts. Uh, some, I think some do. Maybe it's like just add to list or something. If it's got a plus on it, just click that. That's if you want to hear another one of these. You may not. You may not want to listen to The Racist. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, and, and I probably won't be able to listen to it back because I don't like the sound of my own voice. So that is, I don't know why I'm doing this, to be honest. It's stupid. I have made a mistake, but I'm committed to doing it. So it will be back uh, next week. I'll have a crack at it. I'll see if I can make it 30 minutes long, maybe a bit longer. Things tend to get longer, don't they? Uh they don't get shorter, they get longer. I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe you, you start to like the sound of your own voice or something. Um, but that seems like it should be completely impossible for me. So no risk of that there. I'll probably keep it to exactly 30 minutes. Uh, having said that, I've gone over. So um, I don't have a sign off. I don't have a plan. That's why I'm rambling. Um, maybe I should just cut it off and say, see you next week. Hopefully.